Hello everyone, this is Arun and Jojo, welcoming you to yet another episode of Scraps. It is your podcast where we, on your behalf, explore the sparks of brilliance in science and innovation. If you write down sparks on a piece of paper, you'll probably guess that our podcast title is exactly that word spelled backwards. Let's get into the show for today then. Today we're joined by a famous psychologist. He has constantly challenged our understanding of our feelings of love and learning. Love and learning might seem like two diametrically opposed topics, as one is the feeling and the other is about grasping. But our guest today has redefined the theories around both and has provided some amazing justifications. He also seems to like the number three. And we'll find out why his theories are called theory of adaptive intelligence and triangular theory of love. Arun and I are not psychologists, but we're really intrigued by his column in New Scientist magazine that was recently published, and we've invited him to chat about his personal experiences. His journey to arriving in his theories is both personal and one that is sure to profoundly impact how we are as students, teachers, and as parents. He's incredibly witty and has uh, spent time at multiple universities like Yale, Tufts, Oklahoma, and Wyoming. Now he's uh, finding himself at home at Cornell University. He's a past president of the American Psychological Association. He's listed by APA as one of the top 100 psychologists of the 20th century and has been the recipient of numerous awards, including the Distinguished Scholar Award from the National Association of Gifted Children. My membership was revoked, by the way. James McKean Cattell Award from the Association of Psychological Science and the prestigious Thorndike Award for Achievement in Educational Psychology. He is an author of a new book that has hit the stores this past month, past month called Adaptive Intelligence, Surviving and Thriving in Times of Uncertainty. Welcome to the show, Dr. Sternberg. Thank you. So you have um, a pretty personal experience of why a certain methodology of examination is suitable. Do you Do you um, care to share and expand on that with us? Sure. I got interested in the topic of intelligence, which is what I mostly study. Uh, When I was in elementary school, early elementary school, they used to come every year or two and give us group IQ tests. And I would freeze as soon as the psychologist entered the room. I knew who she was. I knew why she was there. I knew what was coming up. And so other kids would be turning the page of the IQ test, and I would still be on the first problem. So as a result, I did poorly, and they never told us our scores. But if you never get past the first page, it's a pretty good guess that you didn't do so well. And uh, I wondered what my problem was. And then um, I was not uh, not doing well. I mean, like, you know, my teachers knew I had a low IQ and thought I was kind of stupid and treated me like I was stupid and I acted stupid and they were happy I was stupid and I were happy. I was happy. They were happy. And everyone was pretty happy. Uh, and so I was kind of going on being a crapo student. And then in fourth grade, I had a teacher, Mrs. Alexa, who thought that there's more to a person, a student in this case, than just the IQ test score. And she made it clear that she expected more of me. Uh, and I, I tried to give her more. I really liked Mrs. Alexa. I, I thought she was really cool. And, uh, 
You know, and I, it I, always starts off with one good teacher to change your life, isn't it? Yeah, well, it was it was certainly her. I mean, you know, my plan was for her to be more than a teacher, but she was a little too old and she was married and she lived on a houseboat, or at least so I was told. And I, I mean, the old and the married, maybe I could have dealt with, but the houseboat, I get seasick. So I figured we don't have a future together anyway. So she expected more of me than uh, the other teachers had, and I wanted to make her happy. And uh, so I became a good student in fourth grade. Uh, and yeah, so it was one teacher who kind of changed things for me. And then in sixth grade, I'd done so poorly on the IQ test that they sent me back to fifth grade to retake the easier test. And uh, that was a great experience for me because whereas I was afraid to take the test with kids my own age, uh, taking the test with fifth graders didn't scare me at all because I was about to graduate from elementary school. I mean, I was I was hot stuff at that point, if I must say so myself, and they were just fifth graders. Uh, <laughs> so I wasn't anxious, and I presumably did better. Uh, and then when I was in seventh grade, I uh, was trying to figure out why I had done so poorly on the IQ test, and I did a project on development of mental testing. I was 13, and I found the Stanford Binet Intelligence Scales in the adult section of the library in my hometown in New Jersey, uh, and I thought it would be good practice to give it to some of my classmates. So, uh, you know, things with Mrs. Alexa had not worked out, as you know, uh, and there was this girl I was romantically interested in who uh, was not married uh, and wasn't too old for me and didn't live on a houseboat. So I I was a little shy, though, so I uh, figured I could break the ice by giving her an IQ test, uh, which did not work. Uh, if uh, your listeners remember one thing, it should be that if you're romantically interested in someone, don't give them an IQ test. So that was a bum. <laughs> steer. And uh, although we're still friends many, many years later, uh, just we, we never did uh, go anywhere romantically. Uh, and then I gave that test to some other kids in my class. And apparently, uh, one of the mothers got wind of what I was doing. And she uh, <laughs> tattled on me to the head school psychologist. And uh, so I was called out of social studies class and he bowled me out for 40 minutes for giving classmates the IQ test, ending with he personally would burn the buck if I ever brought it into school again. And so that's uh, that was it. I mean, like I figured if he's so upset about like, giving IQ tests, they must be really interesting. You know, if, I mean, for a psychologist, that was pretty piss poor performance, really. I mean, you never... You never say that because that just gets kids more interested, right? I mean, like forbidding something makes it so attractive. And so I spent, I've spent the rest of my life studying it. And I hope I've taught him a valuable lesson in terms of how he handles other kids if he hasn't filmed to be alive. So your whole body of work is, is germinates from spite? Oh, no, I wouldn't say it was spite. Uh, far from it. I, I, I'm a teacher. And for me... This was the kind of lesson he needed uh, in order to do his job properly. And I hope that he learned it from me. And I would feel, you know, I would feel a deep sense of reward and 
personal satisfaction if uh, my devoting my life to the study of intelligence and teaching about it taught him the lesson he needed to learn. So no spite there. I mean, you know, I hope you don't hear that in my tone of voice because it's so far from the kind of person I am. So the botany sounding name, which is Stoma, Sternberg Test of Mental Ability, was actually kind of an outcome of of that experience then, Dr. Sternberg. That's right. Yeah, that was the other part of my seventh grade uh, science project. I created the Stoma, which I doubt any of your listeners has ever taken since uh, nothing ever happened to it. Uh, and um, it was uh, about what you'd expect from a 13-year-old. It had lots and lots of different tests, but nothing original in it. And what I did discover, or I should say rediscover, is what Charles Spearman, an English psychologist, discovered in 1904. So I was a little behind the times. Uh, and that is, it really didn't seem to matter exactly how many tests you gave. They all measured about the same thing. So it must have been labeled as reliable in that case. That Well, yeah, I mean... It, if you had a few hours to take the stoma, it was a, a good standard IQ test. I later realized, though, that standard IQ tests are problematical. I mean, I could talk about that if you'd like. I'd, I'd like to hear that because I, I know I was still given an IQ test as a kid. And and I'll never know if this is true, but my parents alleged that my that I tested so well that they didn't want to tell me my score in fear that I would become lazy and say, oh, I'm smart. Here, this paper proves it. I don't have to do the work. Um, but that that sort of same thing with you, that they left it a mystery. And so I just said, well, it must be really good then. I think I'm fine. I don't have to do the work. Yeah, I actually swing the opposite way. I don't want anybody giving me any report card on what they think of my intelligence. So I, I just refuse to take any of the IQ test ever. Uh, and nobody ever forced me into taking one. So, Yeah, well, you may have been tricked into taking one without realizing it because a lot of the standardized tests that are given... Uh, they try to disguise what they are by calling them different things. So in this country, we have the SAT and the ACT and the GRE and the MCAT and the GMAT and the LSAT and, you know, a whole alphabet soup of different tests. Uh, and they all measure pretty much the same thing, which is the same IQ, the same thing IQ tests measure plus some specific knowledge and skills. So they have taken an IQ test with a different name. I don't know. It depends where you grow up. But if you live in the United States, you probably did. They just call it something else. In any case, so I did go into the, uh, I continued studying intelligence through undergraduate school, and then I did my dissertation on it. And um, when I when I was uh, doing my dissertation, I thought that the problem with IQ tests was that they didn't tell us the mental processes that underlay intelligence. So, for example, if you gave people a verbal analogy like uh, ameliorate is to mitigate is exacerbate is to what, which used to be used a lot on IQ tests or related tests, I thought, well, it's supposed to measure your verbal reasoning, but it really measures your vocabulary. Uh, so that's what I originally thought was the problem with IQ tests, that they were kind of 
disguised tests of sort of upper middle class social upbringing. But when I, then when I was, um, I, I got my PhD at Stanford uh, all the way back in 1975. And then I went to Yale as a professor. At that point, I was director of graduate studies. And there were three students who applied for admission. Uh, one of them, whom I call Alice, not her real name, who had really high test scores and terrific grades and great letters and everything you'd want in an applicant. So we admitted her. And then it turned out that she really was good at doing what the IQ tests or the SATs or ACTs or GRE said should be good at. She was very good at memorizing stuff and analyzing it. But when it came time to come up with an idea, in this case for a dissertation, uh, she wasn't as strong in the creative side. And of course, if you go into science, that's a lot of what it's about. It's about coming up with ideas for theories and models and hypotheses and experiments and so on. And what I realized is that the tests were exclusively knowledge-based and analytical, and you know they didn't measure creativity at all. I mean, quite the contrary. You know, they were using multiple choice tests, and if you were creative, you were kind of screwed, as we would say in New Jersey. So. Um, and so she was very good analytically, but not creatively. And what I came to realize is that it's not maybe that she wasn't born creative. I mean, people aren't born creative. You know, there's no creativity gene that anyone's ever come close to finding. It's rather that our educational system so rewarded her for being good at memory and analytical skills. I mean, you know, that's that's what it's all about. You know, getting high scores on standardized tests that your parents won't tell you about a problem I never had. Uh, or, you know, getting good grades or, you know, just doing what teachers tell you to do. That's, that's what a lot of professors want, right? They want students who will just do what they're told. And that's what these tests measure. So she was good at that, but she she had no incentive to develop creative skills. Why should she? Because everything's sort of a winner system. Uh, so then they go to they go into life where you need to be creative and you need to have your own ideas and the world is changing really fast. I mean, look at the total failure of our politicians to deal with COVID-19. I mean, it's a disgrace and they're still screwing it up. I mean, you know, today is March 4th. We've had this for a year and we have governors saying, yeah, well, our cases are high. Let's not wear masks anymore. I mean, like, you know, so you, you really need people to say, hey, you know, it's not 1955 and people are dying and uh, more people are going to die if they keep breathing on each other. You need people who can deal with novelty, not just do what they did for the last hundred years and their parents did. And we don't have that so much. And part of the reason, I think, is we tend to put people through a funnel where creativity doesn't matter much. The people are good at doing what they're told to do and what they've done before. And that's essentially what tests measure. So uh, we had another student who applied, uh, who I call Barbara, and she didn't have good test scores. In fact, her test scores were really for crap, at least by Yale standards. And uh, but she had done really creative work and had great letters of recommendation. And so I wanted to admit her, but no one else on the committee did. And I actually got into an argument with a number of another member of the committee who said, well, you know, everyone who succeeds in their graduate program 
has high GREs like over 650, which was the scale at the time. And she doesn't. So she's not going to see it. I said, yeah, you know, you're right. I, she doesn't have high GREs. And I can tell you why everyone who succeeds in her program has high GREs. It's because we don't admit anyone with low GREs. It's, it's exactly a superstition. You know, if you never admit anyone with lower GREs, then everyone who succeeds is going to have higher GREs. And then you're going to believe that the test actually tell you something. So uh, I was the only person who voted for her. And um, she wasn't admitted. And then I hired her as a research associate. And she worked for me for a couple of years, did great creative work. And then she got admitted two years later as the top pick into the program. But what always struck me is that for every person like her who got a chance, because I hired her, there are probably thousands who don't get a chance to go anywhere because yeah. the test scores just wipe them out. Mm-hmm. And if it's not the test scores, it'll be the teacher recommendations. There'll always be a teacher who doesn't like creative kids. I mean, they're annoying. <laughs> you know, they don't do what they're told. They want to do things their own way. Uh, sometimes they're defiant. And so, you know, so the so I realized that in addition to the Alice-like analytical skills there's also a creative side and then there was a third and she did great by the way barbara's done really great and then there was a third student celian she had test scores that were nothing special and her grades were nothing special you know i talked to her she seemed to be nothing special at the point we admitted her in graduate school she seemed like nothing special and then she goes and gets every job she applied for and and then i thought well how the heck did she do that uh, and then I realized that what she'd done is that she was just really good at doing interviews. She, you know, I wish I were that good. She, I mean, I screwed up a lot of interviews, but she could go into an interview, figure out what they wanted to hear and give it to them. I mean, like, that's a real skill uh, because the research was okay, but it was nothing great. And her analytical skills were nothing great. So I realized there's a third side to this, which is practical abilities or common sense. And so at that point, um, in the 80s, I came up with this so-called triarchic theory of intelligence that had three parts. Uh, And then uh, I do a lot of things in threes. I have a triangular theory of love, a triarchic theory of intelligence, a triangular theory of creativity. I even have triplets. I mean, like, you know, that that is really bizarre. So that is where the inspiration comes from. Give me a break. No, they came later. I mean, it's like (laughs) we didn't plan for triplets. It's not like, well, anybody does. They came later. So it seems like uh, that's just the way it goes for me. Anyway. So uh, later in my career, though, I, uh, I, the theory changed somewhat and I added wisdom uh, because there are a lot of people who are analytically, creatively, and practically smart, and they only use it for themselves. I mean, you know, we have a lot of politicians today who went to very fancy universities. I mean, really, you know, top Ivy League schools. And I realize, you know, they're, they're analytically smart. They know what they're doing. They're creative and thinking of ways to advance themselves. Uh, they're practically intelligent in that they'll say anything to make the sale. And they have no wisdom at all. It's all about them. Uh, you know, they're totally, they're, you know, like it's, they're, I wouldn't use the term narcissist, but uh, they're narcissists. So, so I said, well, you know, there's got to be something more, and that something more is wisdom, and that's using your abilities and your knowledge for a common good. So, and we so lack that. Today. I mean, our schools are teaching kids 
skills to get them into good colleges, to, that they can make a lot of money, that they can own a nice house in a gated community and a big car and have two and a half kids. Uh, you know, we're doing a lot of optimizing individual success. But what I've come to realize, and that's where I've gone into this theory I call adaptive intelligence, while we're doing this, while we're putting so much emphasis on these skills, the world's falling apart. I mean, you know, like it's incredible. We have these people who go to Ivy League schools and they think, how else can I increase pollution? Hmm, I could put more money into coal. I can try to suppress uh, any kind of energy that doesn't pollute the atmosphere. Uh, I can try to increase income disparities so that the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. But I'm gonna, I'm so smart I can trick the poor people into thinking I'm actually helping them. Boy, that is really clever. I mean, like all I have to do is take a few issues that are really hot button issues, and I know that people will get emotionally involved in them, and they won't notice that I'm getting rich at their expense. That's pretty smart of me. Uh, so we, you know, in we have global climate change, we have a pandemic. Uh, we, you know, it's like we really, if if we are serious about intelligence in its original meaning, which is adaptation to the environment, then all these test scores, they don't mean they don't mean anything. I mean, you know, we've got people who did really well in these tests who are doing everything they can to make sure that their kids and their grandkids will live in a really horrible world so that they can be the next autocrat of the United States or Poland or Hungary or Brazil or wherever they're going to go. And that's not, that's not smart. You know, that isn't if you're destroying the environment, if you're destroying uh, the lives of poor people, meanwhile, trying to fool them into thinking, they're thinking that you're doing something, that isn't smart. So what I mean by adaptive intelligence is using your intelligence to make the world better and not the world worse. And we have so many leaders today who are going out of their way uh, to enrich themselves or increase their power or increase their popularity and they're using so-called IQ points to do that. And if that's what we mean by intelligence, we, we went really off track somewhere. I don't believe that everybody needs to go to college. I think that there are pathways through life that will bring you happiness, fulfillment, and success that don't necessarily include college. But there, there are professions for which you must have a college degree. How do we get universities and graduate schools to look at people on that more holistic scale that you're proposing? We have done that. Um, we have devised tests that measure not only analytical skills, which is what conventional tests measure, but also creative, practical, and wisdom-based skills. So examples of creative questions would be things like, uh, take some event in history and imagine it had come out a different way. What might the world be like today? Like, Suppose that the Germans had won World War II. What might the world be like today? Or suppose that the computer had never been invented. What might the world be like today? Or draw a picture of the end of time. Or write a creative story with a title like the end of social media. Or design a scientific experiment on any question that you find interesting. So we, we give them a choice of things. 
uh, a practical question might be, uh, how have you persuaded a friend of an idea you had that the friend didn't initially accept? I just had that this morning. I was just talking to someone in the UK about a paper we'd written, and we disagreed about something. And he was trying to persuade me, and I was trying to persuade him. I mean, that's what a lot of life is. Um, so, you know, it's your it's your sort of persuasive skills, your common sense skills. Um, we also have movie questions, for example, in one of them, some college students are trying to get a bed, a big bed mattress up a winding staircase and realize it doesn't fit. So how can they get the mattress up to the second floor? So those are practical questions and wisdom-based questions are things like uh, take some passion you have in your life now that you can't do much about and what could you do in the future to try to um, achieve some kind of good, common good with it? Or, and, or or we might give them a problem like two countries are arguing over water resources. Uh, there's a river that flows down and it goes through both of them. And the uh, country that is downstream is ready to go to war with the country upstream because they say they're stealing the water. How could you negotiate a resolution to that? Uh, so those would be examples of wisdom-based questions. So these are things that can be assessed, but our universities are so stuck on measuring knowledge and skills. I mean, you know, like so much of what we measure in terms of, you know, like on the on our standardized tests, you know, obscure geometric formulas or algebra you'll never need or trigonometry. I mean, it's fine if kids know that. Sure, measure it. But that's not gonna. That's not what's gonna make a better world. It's not enough anyway. Uh, you need to be creative. You need to have common sense. You need to be wise. You need to be ethical. You need to find something you're passionate about. And it's really a puzzle to me. You know, um, the years are going by. Why we have stuck with tests that are such failures? You know, I mean, if you just look at the people coming out of our, a lot of people coming out of our top schools are some of the biggest fools you could possibly imagine. So that suggests we're doing something different. So I think that the goal of college ought to be to, or any school really, is to uh, develop active, concerned citizens and ethical leaders. People will make a, the world a better place. And instead, we're educating a lot of people who seem very determined to make the world a better place for them uh, and to fool others that they're doing it for the others. Uh, and, and, and it works. I mean, you know, like in the United States, it's scary uh, where we are today. I mean, you know, it's like, and it's not just in the United States. I mean, like, do, do you know that in the 20th century, IQs went up 30 points? I mean, 30 points, that's huge. That's the difference between someone who's average and someone who's gifted or between someone who's average and someone who's borderline mentally challenged. 30 points. The only reason that the average IQ stayed 100 is because test publishers renormed the test. So we have 30 more points of IQ on the average than we had in 1900. And look what look at the mess we've made. I mean, you know, like you're in, so you said you're in San Francisco, Jojo. Well, all you have to do is walk around there. Uh, they're the people who own the five and six and seven million dollar houses, and they're the people who are on the streets. And it's not just in San Francisco; it's it's all over the world. 
And somehow that is not a sustainable system. It's not sustainable that there'll be all these people who are millionaires, billionaires, uh, and people who can't eat. And, you know, certainly we want to do better than that. But the testing industry is big business. I mean, the GREs, the LSATs, MCATs, all of that, that's a big moneymaker. And, and the universities are, are, you know, there's a lot of political pressure to, to reevaluate those tests because of a perceived or real in, um, bias towards certain people and certain, certain groups of people. But how do you, industry is, I mean, trying to shut down a big business like that takes more than just hoping it, that, that it's so. Yeah, I know. I've been trying to do it for 45 years, and you can see how far I've gotten. I mean, why do you think I have this white hair? I mean, you know, I and all these wrinkles, I would look really great if it weren't for uh, my failure to change all these things. Uh, you know, it's uh, we'd all like to blame the testing companies, and of course it is partly their fault. I mean, you know, as you can see from the wrinkles, I really need to get some wrinkle cream here. Um, but in any case... <laughs> It's not just the testing companies. Uh, it's it's actually lots of people. It's the universities because they get to test essentially for free. The students pay. Well, that's nice. You know, the students pay to take the test to get them rejected. And in, in the tests are, you know, what they want is to know the kids who can take the courses and they're easy for professors to teach. You know, they do what they're told. The tests are good measures of... People do what they're told. Now you you do this assignment, you write this paper, or you take this multiple choice test, and you do like a job on it. So you know the, the professors like these tests because they tell them they tell who's going to be easy to teach. Universities like the test because they're free. Parents like the test. Well, not all parents. Wealthy parents like the test because they can buy courses for the kids. They can uh, buy books. Uh, if they're well-educated, they themselves uh, spend many years preparing the kids for the test. They send the kids to schools that prepare the kids for the test. So the people who are already in power uh, kind of stay in power, and the people who aren't in power have no voice anyway. Uh, I guess uh, the, the, there's the whole testing industry of coaches and tutors and, you know, helpers and it's huge. Uh, so there are an awful lot of people who are profiting from the existing system, not just the testing companies. Uh, the uh, You know, it's kind of ironic that the biggest disruptor after all the stellar work my colleagues and I in the field have done, uh, our work hasn't made much difference. What's really mattered is COVID-19. I mean, I think about the only good thing it did. I mean, it did so many horrible things is it made universities have to reconsider using standardized tests. But what was amazing is that here we were utterly botching our response to COVID-19. And instead of saying, what does that tell us about intelligence? People worried about where am I going to take the SAT or the ACT or the GRE? They still haven't figured out that whatever it is, intelligence broadly conceived is, it's not that. I mean, that's what's gotten us into this mess. I mean, there's nothing wrong with being good at taking tests. That's fine. But you also need some people who use their skills for more than just 
uh, making their own lives pleasant. And, and we're such an individualistic society that we have sort of created this pyramid based on people's skills in making their own lives better. And then we validate the test against individual criteria like what college did you go to? How many years did it take you to get out? What was your GPA? How much money are you making? Are you in a prestigious occupation? What company? So we use criteria to validate the test that are essentially individual success, often at other people's expense. And that is, that's dumb. I mean, I'm not saying we should have to become a collectivist society, but if we don't start looking out for each other, you know, we're not going to have a Brazilian rainforest. Uh, we're going to, it's going to get so hot that, you know, people are going to, a lot of places can't live anymore. I mean, we, in places like Louisiana, they've all, already lost a lot of land mass. Uh, Florida is losing land mass and will lose more. Uh, much of the coast is going to disappear underwater in the U.S. I mean, you know, like, come on, uh, even if you're, well off of the under the present system, if you live in a coastal place, it may not be over water if you don't start taking these issues seriously. Yeah, and I think what you actually said there about the the, the adaptive intelligence in terms of creative, analytical, and and the wisdom based intelligence here or wisdom uh, kind of has all come together in terms of the development of the vaccine, right? I mean, it basically involved a lot of push-pull mechanisms. There is another thing about distribution, et cetera, which, which we will not touch at this point of time. But again, that basically speaks to the fact that, um, that the, if people put their heads together and if they use their three kind of uh, arms or, or the three vertices of the triangle, uh, as you point out here, with the various t- variable types of intelligence or abilities that people can actually need to wield at different points of time it actually leads to a common good uh is basically what the 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 premise that you're putting forward in your book correct so i actually have one follow-up question on this whole aspect i mean do we uh, while you were just describing about the various types of how intelligence is or various types of individuals um is there any relationship to ego or or high self worth uh, with a specific type of intelligence, uh, rather than, um, or is it a combination, or or is that even a moot point? Well, I think that what we have done is we have built up people who are good at skills that for tests matter a lot, but for everyday life matter much less. And so we often end up with the wrong people going to get higher education and better higher education. Uh, you know, if you want to be, if you want to have high self-worth and try doing something for someone else beside yourself every once in a while. I did want to comment on your um, vaccine uh, example, because I think it is an excellent example, as you say, of creative, analytical, practical, uh, and wisdom-based skills working together. The biggest challenge we face is uh, exactly what Joe Biden said yesterday, the people thinking in Neanderthal ways who, well, you know, uh, we're getting somewhere here. Now let's go around with no masks and uh, not worry about all this stuff. And, uh, you know, as long as we have, as long as we elect leaders, 
whose main concern is solely themselves getting reelected and who deceive people. You know, they, they pretend they know more than scientists know about science, which is probably, and you know, heck it, people believe it. I mean, we're so doing something wrong in our schools when you have people who are totally ignorant about science, who, you know, act as though they have never taken an elementary course in science telling us how, uh, you know, distinguished medical doctors and medical researchers are make mistakes. I mean, like, huh? You know, it's sort of like uh, they don't know anything and, and people believe it. I mean, they're so swayed by emotions. So what we need to be doing in education is teach people, you know, you, you need to think rationally. You need to look, is there empirical evidence for what's being said? Uh, is does it make sense? Is it logical? And we, you know, all these school-based problems, all these standardized tests, they don't measure what really matters. And that is, in in real life, no one just gives you the problems on a computer and a piece of paper. You have to find the information and you have to evaluate it. And it turns out that even people who can be pretty good at the test are often terrible at you know, looking outside their little bubbles of people who think the same way they do. And that's what we really need, getting outside the bubble and asking yourself, are there other points of view that are maybe better than the one I'm holding to? I think that's when I find myself screaming at the television when I watch the news is um, the inability to apply common sense to these political solutions to worldwide problems. Economics seems to have been an area where we've definitely failed in grasping that. So not just science, but the inability to really understand that you can't just keep printing money as an escape from a financial problem caused, caused by a pandemic. Um, that That's a little soapbox. I'll step off now, but the, the inability to grasp economics kills me every time. Yeah, it's economics, it's science, it's common sense. And those are the things I think schools ought to be teaching and worry less about the esoteric content just because it's going to appear on some kind of standardized test. What we need to do is, you know, give kids in schools problems like the ones we face in the real world. What do you do when you have leaders who lie to you all the time and they just keep repeating the lies because people tend to believe lies if they hear them enough? What do you do if you have leaders who not only lie, but try to blur the distinction between reality and fantasy because that's what autocrats always have done. There's nothing new. Um, if we value having some kind of democracy, then we just have to do so much better than we're, we're doing. And I don't think the schools are adequately preparing, and I'm talking about starting in elementary school, preparing kids for living in a democratic society. Yeah. And you also, I think coming back to the, to the, um, the, the, the use of such, uh, assessments uh, of adaptive intelligence. You kind of spearheaded that at, while you were at, at Tufts as well as at when you were at Oklahoma, etc. Can you tell Oklahoma us about... State, uh, I must say, I, I heard Oklahoma. Oklahoma State is a different university. They're, they're rivals. Oh, yeah. Someone yes, they are. They would never say they were at Oklahoma and vice versa. Oklahoma them. State. Apologies <laughs> to everybody from Oklahoma. Yeah, um, okay. Or Oklahoma State, for that matter. Yeah. yeah. So you actually, 
did that in terms of rolling it out as part of the admissions process right. at both the universities. Right. So, did you see any visible differences in the years thereafter in terms of oh, yeah. of, of the type of students and the type of teaching and the all on, on both sides of, of 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 the aisle in terms of the classroom? Yeah, I was a professor at Yale for many years, and then uh, the we were funded by, in our first testing project by a testing company. And then when we got good results, they thought, well, now they'll give us the big money. And then it, instead they cut off our money, which I should have realized would happen because if you don't, when it's an industry, if your results don't support their product, uh, you can wave goodbye to your money. And that's when I went into administration at Tufts and Oklahoma State, and it made a huge difference. We started admitting kids who never would have gotten in on the old system, uh, and they got in uh, by showing that they could be creative, uh, practically intelligent, and wise. We did it both places, and it, uh, it enabled kids to be admitted who otherwise wouldn't have been. So, you know, it's not like if you have kids who have really, really low grades or maybe even test scores, they're probably not going to get in because you're worried about whether they can do the work. I mean, if they can't do the academic work, they, you're not doing anyone any favors. And if you have kids who have great applications, well, you'll probably admit them anyway. Where these measures were most useful is for the very large number of kids who were, you know, on the borderlines. They're admissible, but Maybe they'll get in, maybe they won't. And for those students, the uh, we really had great success using these measures. I think another area where you have a, a tremendous amount of, of expertise and, and have made great progress is in cognitive styles and mental self-government. You want to touch on that a little bit? Yeah, uh, basically all we're saying there, without going into details, is that people have different preferences for the way they learn. So some students, some kids like to do things their own way. Like, I was like that. I mean, I, I, I always have problems when people tell me what to do. I always have, I still do. I always wanted to do the opposite, as you discover with the IQ testing thing. There's some kids who are like that. That's kind of what I, I call that a legislative style. You know, like to do things your own way. There are other kids who like to be told what to do. I mean, you know, you tell me what to do, I'll do it, and I'll do a good job of it. We're not talking about abilities. We're talking about how you prefer to think and learn. Uh, there are some kids who are big – I'm a big picture kind of person. Like whenever I have a job, I need someone to help me with the details. There's some people who are details people who are less big picture people. There's some people who like to work with others to learn. You know, like they like working in groups. There's some who like working by themselves. So the whole thing about thinking styles is just that people like to learn and think in different ways. And if you give them a chance to work in a way that is a good match to who they are, they tend to do better. And that's what our results show. Uh, so for me, you know, I, I always preferred projects and papers, things that it allowed me to think my own way. Other kids, you know, prefer uh, multiple choice tests. So the best thing you could do is get have people learn in a variety of ways so that they can capitalize on the things they really like to do, but also uh, correct. You know, if you're not good at following directions, you have to be good. At, you have to learn how to be good enough to get by. You know, it's like. 
with taxes, you, you can't, you don't want to be too creative with taxes, right? I mean, you have to learn how to follow the directions uh, or with the myriad forms we get in our lives. I just filled out some forms this morning that I had to send to an embassy. And you know that if you fill out the forms wrong, they're going to send them back. So it, it's just uh, capitalize on your strengths and either compensate for or correct your weaknesses. So that's what that's about. I have another pet peeve that I want to run by you and see what your reaction is. I I have um a a I have a serious opinion on our culture's desire to give everybody a trophy. I I mean California like we've talked about before is sort of off the charts in its uh hippiedom. Um but I I've even seen school districts that ban teachers from using red pens because of the aggressive nature of telling a child that they're wrong. I, I think that there's some value in losing, there's some value in understanding when you're wrong. But am I I mean how far off the mark am I on this one? Well, let me just ask you we might have had a misunderstanding here. I am getting a trophy at the end of this interview, right? <laughs> I mean I just want to make sure and it doesn't matter how good it is. We'll give you a gold star. All right. Well, gold star is good. And I can add it to my uh, collection of gold stars. A trophy would have been nice, but I'll, you know, I have to make do with a gold star. Maybe the next interview, if it goes a little better, I could get a trophy. I, you know, I uh, prefer solid gold and something with it's a shiny kind of gold. But in general, in answer to your question, you want to reward kids for doing things well. And if they don't do things well, if they make a mistake, that's good, too, because you learn from your mistakes, right? I mean, if you don't make mistakes, you don't learn. Uh, the problem with always giving kids trophies is the problem with always rewarding anyone for anything. You don't learn anything. You learn from making mistakes, seeing other people make mistakes. Uh, so maybe I didn't get uh, the best grade this time. What can I do better? You know, in my teaching, uh, you know, it's changed over the years. Uh, you know, I used to have students who would come in and say, well, you know, uh, please, I, I got a C plus. Please consider giving me a B minus. I'll tell you why. Now they're, now they're, some of them are arguing about why didn't I get an A plus? I mean, this is not where you want to be because you're not giving the students a chance to learn from experience and from mistakes. Uh, so you don't want to emphasize how smart you are or anything like that. You want you want to emphasize the quality of the work and that if you do great work, you're rewarded. And if you do work that isn't as great, you may not get as many rewards. But that's a chance to get feedback on what you could do better so that you can do better so that then you'll get a big reward when you do things really well. So my view is the same as yours. As long as I get a trophy for this talk. Oh, I guess it's a gold star. It better be 14 carat at least, though. I mean, I do not accept 10 carat gold star. I've got so, my leprechauns on the job. So, Dr. Sternberg, uh, would you want to comment a bit about kind of the way you kind of define the various cognitive styles? I, I think the folks who actually have a lot of background in psychology and uh, with a lot of insight into your work over the years probably know that. But I think you kind of described the the four forms of how we we probably perceive uh, others is really hierarchical, monarchic, oligarchic, and anarchic. Do you want to comment on on what those styles are and how it kind of 
enables us to see ourselves and see others in that light in and given in a situation coming back to your adaptive intelligence aspect it's about kind of figuring out which one uh, and pairing that with intelligence to ultimately figure out a solution i would assume in terms of knowing personalities and styles so tell us a bit more about that if um about these various forms of mental self government as you call it yeah well i i didn't go into great detail because uh, you know in a uh, brief podcast there's only so much you can cover but basically what that's about is that people have different ways of organizing themselves so some people have used the term monarchic they're dri- they're really driven by something uh so you know in my professional life I've been really I've been kind of monarchic like you know monarchic means one thing drives you like you know a king or a queen uh so I've been driven by wanting to understand intelligence or some people are monarchic in their personal relationships there's there's really somebody they want to be with or there's really something they want to accomplish in their personal relationships uh a monarchic kid in school uh will tend maybe to really excel in one thing and not care that much about the rest. And the thing to realize with those kids is that a lot of, you know, they're not necessarily the kids who are going to have the overall highest GPA, but they're they're kids who could succeed. You know, like my son Seth, my older older boy, who's not a boy anymore, he's uh, grown up. Um he's he's a CEO of a company in San Francisco, Honor. Uh it's a healthcare company and like he just really devotes himself to this business and you know that's great but you know teachers tend to like the all around types so you know who want to as long as they're good in my subject who cares so that's sort of monarchic a hierarchical person is someone who more sets priorities and you know i need to do this and i need to do that and i'm going to give this so much time and that so much time and i better do this first and that later they're very good at setting priorities i once had a student who actually had a bunch of lists of things she needed to get done in the order in which they needed to get done and then she had so many lists that she made a list of lists she was very hierarchical um an oligarchic person has different priorities but they're not so good at juggling them they're not so good at saying this is more important that's less important so they just it's a little jumbled and an anarchic person is someone who's kind of all over the place they um you know they grab a little from here they grab a little from there they seem disorganized uh and school can be a challenge for them they you know some people who uh, live with ADHD tend to be more on the anarchic side but the advantage of that is a lot of creative people are anarchic they grab a little from here they grab a little from there and they make connections that other people wouldn't make so there's not a better or worse style overall you just have to find a way to uh capitalize on the styles you have kind of moving over into a completely different direction. You also dedicated a, a great portion of your career to to your first theory of love and there's a great video on YouTube that we'll include in the show notes on this. Um but would you mind doing the honors of of reviewing that for us? Oh yeah, sure. So that's the the triangular theory of love is probably what you're referring to. Uh the basic idea is that love contains 
three components. One is intimacy, which is how close you feel to someone, how well you communicate with them, uh, how connected you feel, how much you trust them, how much they trust you. It's like really good friendship. The second is passion, which is how, how excited you are about them and how I, I just can't imagine living without this person. And this person is like such a wow. And like, I am so lucky. I can't imagine anyone else in my life except this person. And the third is commitment, which is that you're cognitively committed to stay in the relationship. And so you have these three components, which all everything in my theories comes out of my life. Um, so you got intimacy, you got passion, you got commitment, and then different combinations of those give you different kinds of love. So if you only have intimacy, you have friendship. If you only have passion, you have infatuation. If you only have commitment, you have what I call empty love. If you have intimacy plus passion, that's romantic love. If you have intimacy plus commitment, it's companionate love. If you have passion plus commitment, it's fatuous or foolish love. Uh, and if you have all three, it's consummate or complete love. So the idea, and we have a website for this, uh, lovemultiverse.com, which goes over this in great detail. Uh, and so what we say in lovemultiverse.com is that when you're in a relationship, you have a profile, you know, you have a level of intimacy, you have a level of passion, you have a level of commitment. And relationships tend to be more successful when your triangle matches your partners. You know, if you want a lot of intimacy, they want a lot of intimacy. Uh, if you want a lot of passion, they want a lot of passion. What doesn't work so well is if you want commitment, but they don't want commitment, or you want passion, but they want commitment, and they don't want the passion, or you don't want the commitment. That doesn't work so well. So you want people whose triangles roughly match your own. So is that a is that a fungible scale? Is that I mean, over especially over a long term relationship, those things, those priorities tend to shift and not always together and not always in the same directions. They do shift. Um, everything shifts in life. You know, nothing is uh, guaranteed forever except death and taxes, as they say. Um, so, yeah, it changes. And we have a questionnaire, which I think we're just about to put online on lovemultiverse.com, which measures intimacy, passion, and commitment. And, yes, they can change over time. And in uh, – in, uh, Books I've written, like Cupid's Arrow, uh, I go over the time course of each of these components. Each has a different time course. There's another part to the theory called Love is a Story, which is that our relationships are based on stories that we, you know, we. some people have a business story, which is where you have two business partners, and some people have a fairy tale story where you have like a prince and a <coughs> princess. And some people have a horror story where you have a terrorizer and a victim. And some people have a travel story where you have two people traveling together through time. So we also have a love story scale, which helps you determine your love story. So I think the next time anybody who's listening here is going to go on a date, I strongly urge them to go the Sternberg way, which is instead of taking an IQ test paper with you, please take this particular test questionnaire 
with you just so you know if you actually stand a chance or if the other person actually stands a chance. So we strongly recommend that and we will actually include that in the show notes just to be nerdy. Uh, fantastic. Thank you so much for actually uh, joining us in, and sharing all these wonderful things. So the book is called Adaptive Intelligence um, and and Surviving in That's Times of... one of the books. Just one, one of the, the books, books. <laughs> exactly. So uh, the, yeah, it's Adaptive Intelligence, Surviving and Thriving in terms of uncertainty and we will actually put the link uh for the book as well in the show notes as well thank you so okay. much dr sternberg it was lovely bye thank you thank you bye bye the clips are officially owned and is a property of scraps a brand jointly owned by arun shridhar and jojo blatt no reproduction of content should be undertaken without the permission Sainthan Chandran was the editor and our soundtrack was by Acetad. And we'll be back soon with another installment of Scraps, which is just Sparks, spelled backwards. It really is that simple to remember. Okay, okay, okay.